I was able to find the most wonderful Olympic story about a no-name runner who ran in the 1964 Olympics for the U.S., which, coincidentally enough, was also in Tokyo. Uh, Billy Mills was his name, and barely anyone knew his name when he stepped up to the starting line. He was half Native American, half Caucasian, and grew up in a reservation in South Dakota. Well, tragedy struck at age 12 when his mother passed away, which led to a childhood full of poverty and homelessness and struggle. Now, you understand that during the mid-60s, it, it, this was a time in our nation's life where we had not really come to grips with the toll that uh, Native American displacement had taken on that particular people. <clears throat> we know now that the vestiges of those tribes struggled long with substance abuse, poverty, and unemployment. And of course, as a half-breed, Mills would feel this all that much more acutely when he felt alienated from both ethnicities. But of course, after winning this race in the 10,000 meter in Tokyo, lots of people wanted to know his story. And he said, after struggling through a childhood of poverty and struggle, he eventually earned a scholarship to the University of Kansas in order to run for them. He tells a story after his sophomore year of going back home to work on a garbage collection truck during the summer. And he made the decision not to actually ride with the rest of the crew on the back of the truck, but he would run alongside the truck as it was making its collections. And of course, his friends, who were also true-blooded Lakota people, was the tribe he was a part of, thought that he was doing it because he didn't consider himself to be really part of their group. And he said, no, just when we do trash day, I get an extra 15 miles worth of running in. He was so dedicated. But if you look further back, you'll actually get another piece of his motivation. Mills would go on to say that when his mother died at age 12, he picked up a book to read about Olympic champions. And what he read inside this book was that when, when someone became an Olympian, it meant that they were chosen by the gods to do so. At least that's the way the ancient Greeks believed. And so Mills thought to himself, maybe I can go up to heaven and see my beloved mother, as I do. So all that, that was, he had that incredible motivation pushing on the track. Well, when it came for the time of the race, and he's completely outnumbered by all these greats around him, this is how one article I read described it. Trailing uh, behind the two favored winners for most of the run, Mills had a sudden burst of speed in the last 30 yards. He says it happened because he saw an eagle on the jersey of the German runner that he passed, which reminded him of a conversation he had with his father when he was a boy, he said, I heard my dad's voice in my head saying, someday you will have the wings of an eagle. And I said to myself, I think I can win this thing. And of course he did. After the Olympics were over, Mills returned back to his reservation. And one of the same men who he collected trash with had then become an elder in the tribe. Well, they had a huge ceremony to welcome back and bestowed upon him the honor of a warrior. They gave him a, a, an eagle feather headdress and even a brand new authentic Lakota name that he was going to go by for the rest of his life. He said in this article, they were recognizing me and accepting my full identity. This was the greatest honor that's ever been bestowed on me. Now, the reason I go into that is because I think that we see echoes from Mill's experience in what Paul is saying to Titus here in our passage this morning. We're going through this series on the topic of spiritual formation, this idea of what it is that we at the Christ Pres believe is essential to what it looks like to grow as a Christian, to lay out a clear path. And we've done it, like Scott said, through this acrostic ACTS, A-C-T-S, attend, 
connect, train, and serve. Well, this morning we arrived at this idea that according to the Apostle Paul, in order to live the Christian life, it takes training. It's something that has to be worked at, like an athlete or a skilled musician. Christians have to be taught how to be one. And there's discipline involved. There's a regimen of rigorous training that's involved. But as soon as we dive into this, there are all kinds of landmines that we can drop into. Landmine number one is on the one hand of realizing that how easy it is to interpret these activities that I do and this discipline that I engage in as if those are the reasons why God loves me and cares about me. On the other hand, there's a tendency to think that I can become a Christian and it's so superficial that it barely makes a dent in my lifestyle. Well, the good news is Paul sort of navigates both of these things perfectly in this passage. And I want to unpack it just with three headings here. First of all, I want to look at the nature of training. I want to see what our motivation in training is. And then finally, to establish some kind of regimen of training. Let's look at that first one, the nature of training. It's really great at this point to kind of dive into a word study from this passage, especially there in verse 12, where Paul looks and says that this grace of God is training us. That phrase, training us, is one Greek word. It's the word paidamon, which we get from the root word paideia, which I hope sounds like some English words that you know, because paideia is just the Greek word for child or infant. Uh, This is where we get the word pediatrician from, a a doctor to children. There's actually various other forms throughout the New Testament that would mean oftentimes to instruct, to teach, to correct. There's even kind of an edgy version of it when it gets used as as a synonym for whipping or striking. Sometimes paideia is used as means to to get a spanking, right? So there's a sense in which this word means to train someone up by using admonition so that their character can be molded. There's actually some places where paideia is used to describe the purpose of suffering. Why does God allow me to suffer? Oftentimes it's to train me up, to mold me into something that I'm not. So look, put all that together, right? And what it's saying is, is that the grace of God comes along to treat you as a child. (laughs) Or, slightly less offensively, someone who needs to be developed. Someone who needs to learn things. The assumption of the Bible is, is that we need to grow up. And that actually never stops, regardless of what age we are. And I realize it's not that flattering to consider, but this is so vital to understand that the Bible is presenting a view of spiritual formation that is directly antithetical to the sort of stream that our culture has been flowing down, I would say, even for the last 50 years. If you dial back 50 years ago, you would find that one of the best-selling books on the market was written by Dr. Spock. Not the Star Trek Dr. Spock, by the way, but Dr. Benjamin Spock who was an American uh, pediatrician and author of a book called Baby and Child Care. It's the number one best-selling book almost of all time uh, in American publishing. And I don't know if there's anything really that made a greater imprint on this generation than this book. Because the general gist of the idea was, is that a child will tell you, parent, who they are. They will give them their, they will work through and figure out how they would need to be developed. And your job as a parent is simply to respond to those impulses and sort of come alongside them and gently guide them into who they know they need to be. Hmm. It makes me wonder if Dr. Spock himself would be a little bit amazed at the degree to which we've actually taken that instruction of his. 
So that we're in a world today where the philosophy of personhood, in parenting especially, is that we walk along even a child who, regardless of their biological sex, needs to spend time figuring out their real, albeit on a spectrum, gender, right? Regardless, though, they're going to say, the truth is inside you. The truth about your life is somewhere inside, and your job is to seek that out. And once you've discovered it, don't ever let anybody tell you that you're any different. That's the idea. But you see, Paul's view is so opposite of that. Because his assumption is there's not that much help that you think is going to come from your insides. Your motivations actually are part of the problem. The goal in this life, he's saying, is to be molded by something outside of us. We are not what we are supposed to be. We are not even in a position where we can make the best judgment calls on what we're becoming. Rather, we need something from the outside, a word from the outside, like the word of God. Like the word, the word of the body of Christ, the words of believing people who can walk me through how to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live a self-controlled, upright life. We need those people in our lives. All right. Some of you, however, are getting nervous. And the reason is it's not completely illegitimate because sometimes when religious people start talking about regimens of training and discipleship efforts, some of you have heard that in relation to... Um, weirdo cults. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, people who sort of come in and they kind of have this little bit of megalomania mixed in with the hyper-discipleship where they're watching your every move during the day and grading you on how well you've achieved, I don't know, some level of holiness as it were. How do we know that the Apostle Paul is not one of those people and that we're not being sucked into some weird cultish behavior? Well, I think because of my second point. That's the nature of training. But secondly, I want to look at the motivation behind our training. Because in my opinion, what keeps Paul from being a manipulator who's trying to brainwash people into pure conformity to some bogus ideal life he set up is the fact that his vision is rooted in grace. That's the difference. Look at verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. The difference between the behaviorist cults and Paul's vision for spiritual formation is that it's rooted in the grace of God. Look, you've got to get used to this. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is a deeply grace-centered, gospel-centered growth teacher. It's at the very core of who his being is. He knows that the only thing that really transforms a person from what they are in their sin to what God wants to make them is grace. But that grace, we oftentimes think, is that stuff you know, that we learned when we were uh, first becoming a Christian. You know, I got the grace thing, and now I'm ready to move on to the real advanced stuff. No, that's not Paul's view. Paul believes that the grace that saved us, the same grace that saved us when we were, before we were Christians, is the same grace that's going to grow us up into his likeness. I dug up an old quote from a book written 140 years ago by a British guy named Hay Aiken, who's called The School of Grace, where he says this, Grace not only saves, but it undertakes our training. Grace undertakes our training. Grace bases all of her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all of her teaching power in those mighty memories. And I love that phrase. They're mighty memories. So how does this work? Well, here's what Paul's saying. 
He, he sandwiches this encouragement to renounce ungodliness and live a self-controlled life between two revelations that every Christian has had. Look at verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared. Now look, this is where the word study helps you again, because that word uh, appeared is the Greek word epiphane. Do you hear the English word uh, epiphany in that word? That's what it means. Every Christian, he says, has had an epiphany. The lights came on to have a totally new way of relating to God and a totally new way of looking at the world around them as well. That's what they say has happened. Now, what's he talking about? Well, it doesn't take that long to think through <laughs> because we realize that as soon as we're born into this world, we enter into a pattern of merit, do we not? The basic fundamental message of life that is intuitive inside of our hearts is to basically say, if you do this, then you will live. If you make good grades, you'll get into the right college. If you work really hard, you'll get that promotion and then maybe that raise. If you raise your kids right, they'll grow up to be well-adjusted, non-embarrassing children, adults, right? <laughs> but here's the deal. The problem with that kind of thinking, and Paul unearths it in many places, is what happens in that kind of thinking is you put yourself on a treadmill of despair. Why? Because if you're going to tie your sense of purpose in the world to whether you perform well or don't perform well, you just jumped on a roller coaster. And that roller coaster is exhausting. There's an internal inertia that, gets, that upsets a soul when you're going up and down, where when I do well, I'm happy. When I fail, I'm depressed. Paul will call this throughout his letters, trying to live, quote, according to the law, so much so that there's only two ways to relate to God. You either relate to him on the basis of law or you relate to him on the basis of grace. I think I can go further than that and say that there really are only two religions in life if you think about it. Religion number one says very simply, here you go, live a good life, do the right things, jump through whatever hoops that some religious guru or maybe even through your own heart produced for you, and then maybe, just maybe, you can live as if you're in right relationship with the universe. Or, second religion, you can admit and own, as Jesus is constantly encouraging his people to do, that you have never lived a good life, that your motives were always messed up, that even my best efforts were failures in the eyes of his holiness and perfection. But finding out that he accepts me on the basis of his grace alone is so transformational that then I seek to live a new life. That's it. There's just two religions. <laughs> Only those the only choices, and in my opinion, distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Everyone else has a works way of moving us through. It's a law. It's the, the, according to law. So you see this, though, more clearly when you see the second epiphany that Paul's talking about. It. See the sandwich here in verse 13? He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, there's that word again, epiphany, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, you see it? There's two sandwich epiphanies. We look back to a time when the lights came on, when grace hit us. When was that time for you? Sometimes I think that we, and we use these kind of Christian language uh, uh, phrase, phraseologies all the time. We say, well, you know, why don't you tell me what your testimony is? And that's fine language to hear what people say their testimony is. But I find a far more interesting question is to ask the question, when did grace come home to you? 
When did all of a sudden you wake up one time and say to yourself, wait a minute, this applies to me. Wait a minute, he has freed me. Wait a minute, he actually has overlooked my sin. Not just in general, but mine. When did that happen to you? It made me think of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther and his own sort of journey into faith when he wrote in in his uh, commentary on Galatians. He says, I lived like a monk without reproach. And I thought that I was a sinner before God, but I still had a disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I didn't love him. (laughs) No, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Hmm. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in Romans 1. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Listen to what happened. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Any connection with that? Any memory of that in your, past, in your history to dig out and find out where that grace is? Okay, but look, that's in the past. Many of you start to put that together and say, well, what about the future? It is well within the realm of possibility to have an experience in the past and to be so leaning on that that I've never thought about what tomorrow holds. What if I fail tomorrow? Because oftentimes, even with an experience, a dramatic experience in our past, we can go back to living life as if we're still on probation. Just waiting for God, sort of holding the sword of Damocles over our head, waiting for us to fail at the slightest moment. That's not what Paul says. He says there's a future epiphany yet to come. When Jesus appears, he will be blessed. His showing up is not going to be a curse to Titus, but it's going to be a joy and a reuniting. See what he's saying? It's not just that my past is secure, it's that my future is secure as well. Past, present, and future secure in the grace of God. Since we're quoting reformers, John Calvin said something even more profound when he said, this is the chief axis, the main hinge on which all religion turns. Listen to this. He says, unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have no foundation on which to build piety towards God. See what he's saying? If what you are doing is not rooted in the grace and mercy of God, there will be no fruit that comes up that is pleasing to Him. Rooted, nurtured, and grown in grace, or there is no piety, in Calvin's word, or spiritual formation, in our definition. Look, go back to the Billy Mills illustration. Where did Billy get his motivation to train? Well, I can tell you it wasn't from somebody tyrannically hanging over him, threatening him that if he messed up, he was going to get kicked out of the Olympics. No, there was an idea of joy. You know what that joy was? It was the blessing of his mother and his father. It was the joy that his parents had put in front of him that he looked and said, this is why I run. He's got the words of his father in his ear. Someday you'll have the wings of the eagle. Hey, do a thought experiment with me for a moment. Think about what it is that motivates Billy Mills to win the 10,000 meter in 1964 and compare that to your own internal monologue when you fail. Because I do think that for many of us, we suddenly think that one of the reasons why I am not what God wants me to be is because I just haven't sufficiently shamed myself for what he wants me to be. And if I become convinced of anything, it is that the reason why we are not holy is 
is just the opposite. It's because we have cast him into the role of someone who is heaping more shame and who is suddenly sort of threatening us. Maybe I've not kicked myself in the pants enough. Maybe I need to work with a little more harshness with myself. But in the back of our minds, we still think that God is being withholding. We still look at him as if he doesn't have my best interest in heart. Which, by the way, was the original sin in Genesis chapter 3. Still showing up. Still showing up. And so therefore, if right now you're saying to yourself, okay, 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 okay. Grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. But hey, you can take that too far. Like, we have to be holy. If that's your first instinct when you hear about the grace of God, rather than weeping over those moments of remembrance... I love that those, those wonderful memories that the author was talking about. Rather than wanting to weep over those, if that's your first instinct, maybe it's true that you are infected with the same spirit that motivated Paul to try to correct things that are antithetical to real spiritual formation. Rooted in grace, the method of Paul's transformation is the opposite of the cults. It's not what he's doing. So the nature of training, the motivation of training, thirdly and finally, what about a regimen of training? In the light of that, where might our enthusiasm for grace lead us? And I don't think we can answer this question or even ask it without considering where we are, culturally speaking, that we live in a time where digital media has been so powerfully enmeshed, or I'm going to use the word immersed in our lives, that you've got to find something to come up against it. Our digital media dominates the voices in our lives. It dominates the news media cycle. Think about what you have. You have information about yourself and about almost everyone else that you're in this room with right now that can be, and about their job, about their job history, photographs of their life that can be accessed instantaneously through a small rectangular piece of glass that you can carry in your pocket or in your purse. That is immersion. (laughs) And what it means is, is that is a formative principle. That is forming us into something. And every Christian has to ask the question, what are the other competing voices? Is there something that can come in and offer a different narrative than the one that I'm listening to from every particular aspect at every moment of my life? And the answer, of course, is that we've got to hear from the Bible. (laughs) The Bible. Bible study is a part of this. And not just Bible study as a checkbox that we read because I have no idea what I just read, but I'm supposed to read the Bible. No, Bible study so that we can figure out how the world really works. The Bible is a story of life. It is a narrative of our humanity and the world around us according to our manufacturer's design. And if that's the case, when I read, I'd learn more than just innocent data. I find out about how the world works. My friend Brian Habig puts it this way. He says, narrative drives lifestyle. That's a great three-word sentence. Narrative drives lifestyle. You are believing a certain story about yourself this morning. How much of that is in accordance with God's story? Well, the Bible study is what leads us into that. It's part of our training regimen. And so, therefore, as a matter of practical significance, our adult education team offers you Sunday school. Our Sunday school is a bit limited at this stage because of the space that we have. One day when we have phase two, we'll be able to expand upon that particular offerings. 
But in between the 8.30 service and the 10.45 service, we have a time of Sunday school. Sometimes we take a book of the Bible and we just kind of march through it verse by verse by verse. Other times we'll sort of take more of a 50,000-foot view and sort of see how major Scripture things help to tie it all together. At other times we'll take a topic that we'll pose to the Bible just to see what the Bible might have uh, to say to us. Starting at the last week of August, we are going to uh, launch a curriculum called our Foundations Study. And the leadership of this church is, is going to ask our entire congregation to go through a two-year course of training so that we can get rooted in what we believe God's mission is for us here. Everyone. And we're going to ask everybody as soon as they join the church to go through those two years before we start to offer other things. Now, why are we doing this? So that we can be deeply rooted in the narrative of Scripture as an alternative storyline to all the stories that are being told us through digital media. Not all of which are helpful. The second training that comes to us is through our small group ministry. At any given time in the week, we've got 15, 20, 50 different small groups that are meeting all over the place. And the benefit of a small group is with that small group of people, you've got people there that can hold you accountable. And I'm not talking about holding you accountable in terms of like threatening you and making sure that you attend, but more so that they can kind of cheer you up when you go along and get discouraged. It's the same reason why I think that the CrossFit culture, you know the CrossFit uh, exercise and workout uh, uh, centers that we've got across town, those things thrive because those men hold one another accountable to push them and to work further and move farther in. So here's my question. Do you have a training regimen? A way in which you are beginning to commit to saying, what does God want to form in me? And if I can hold out one little piece of encouragement for you to do that, I can do it through returning to Billy Mills. Look, after the Olympics were over, he finally got all he wanted. All of his life, he had to live in the powerful awkwardness of being a half-breed. Never fully at home in the white world and never fully at home in the Native American world. But all of a sudden, when the people who had the authority to bestow it upon him, gave him the true rights of the Lakota people. He became a unified man. And all of a sudden, he got a new identity, he said, and an official Lakota name. And he would go on and say, this was the most dignifying experience I've ever had in my life. And you know what it made me think of? It made me realize that whether you are 15 years old or whether you are 95 years old, you don't ever stop training. The training has never stopped. Until I breathe my last, I'm always training. I'm always, we push on through that finish line, do we not? But what is the motivation? What is the glory that awaits us? You ready for this? In Revelation 3.12, we find out that believers will receive a new name that only Jesus knows. There's something about that, that all of a sudden in that moment, there's an identity and a new name. That means we will be so powerfully dignified by the God of the universe that that name will ring throughout the halls of heaven forever. That's, what, that's the glory that's set in front of this race, <laughs> of this training. And I'm not sure there could be anything higher. I wonder how that might change the way in which we pursue it. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that realization Father, who knows where we find ourselves? Some of us may find ourselves tyrannized by the burden of feeling so guilty of how many times we've begun to study, begun to learn, and then feel like we failed. Others of us, Father, have gotten so 
Father, so distracted that we forgot that this was even important and we're just going along with the stream of where the culture wants to take us. So, Father, for both of those people, we ask your Holy Spirit, who alone can come in and show us the glory of what you put in front of us through the Apostle Paul to Titus, that your grace leads us to move away from this ungodliness, the things, Father, that are eroding our humanity rather than supporting it. So we beg of you, Father, come and move in us this, this morning. Allow us, Father, as we sing, to rejoice in what you are doing and will do in the future until you speak that new name to us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.